there is so much similarity in some of the issues that come up in the procurement of major construction projects as there are with social services. It's very interesting. You would think that they would be very different procurements, but in fact, a lot of the issues and challenges that come up are very similar. And that is about that early market engagement and helping define the problem and deep risk rather than pricing risk in. How do you de-risk up front? How do we talk about that in a way that doesn't destroy probity? But then Contract management is an ongoing skill, I think. Relational contract management is just as applicable in construction and infrastructure as it is in social services. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Libertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. Sharon, it's so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Delighted to be here, Suzanne. Delighted to be here. I wonder if you'd be happy to share something about you that a lot of people might not know. I... Probably people don't know that I did my postgraduate studies in religious studies. So I've always been incredibly interested in systems of belief and how people institutionalize that. So yeah, I did my postgrad work in religious studies. Probably most people wouldn't suspect that. No. And how has that influenced your life and your career since? Look, I think again, understanding the complexity of belief systems and understanding the complexity of how people record those beliefs and what gets passed down may not necessarily have been what was in the original transcript, or that indeed a lot of these are interpretations uh, and translations of interpretations. And that's always really interesting to keep in mind. And it's so relevant when it comes to complexity, because we know the importance of different perspectives, but also the importance of letting people interpret information for themselves. Very much so. And the the importance of context that a lot of, you know, kind of the religious scriptures, regardless of the faith base, were created in a particular time and place that we know only a little bit about. And that context was very important to an understanding of those scriptures. And so, yeah, understanding context is really important in complexity. It certainly is. And I think it's, given your background, I think it's so fascinating that you're currently the Deputy Director General with responsibility for setting and leading the framework for procurement across the Queensland government. So you're involved in things from big infrastructure projects like Cross River Rail, getting ready for the Olympics in 2032, to purchasing all the different general goods and services that are needed right across the public sector, and as well as purchasing support for people and communities who are in need, so much more social services. And you came to the role, apart from your studies in religious studies, you actually started out as a social worker. I did indeed. I I didn't stay a very long time as a social worker, but that was certainly my training. And my first couple of years in, in real work was as a social worker. So curious about two things. What made you decide to take the leap into something else? And how do you think that background has actually helped you in your career? So as with so many things, it was just by accident that I ended up working for government and in government policy. I was working for a time in a feminist collective, and that was very interesting. 
but I was too young to understand how to negotiate feminist politics and uh, collective politics probably more to the point. And so I left that job and took a temporary secondment with the then Department of Families just before I was moving. I was going to move on to um, another state and take another job with a hospital. That didn't end up happening. And the work that I was doing in the secondment was so interesting. I ended up staying around for 30 years or so, I guess, in terms of working with government. So, yeah. And I think what social work uh, and that practice of social work has given me has been really just invaluable in working in government policy and government corporate and commercial systems, probably for a couple of reasons. One, I think social work gives you an appreciation of systems and systems theory and the understanding of that everything you know occurs within a system, that there are various levers that you can use to deal with a particular problem, and that there are always consequences for other parts of the system when you engage. So understanding systems has been really critical. I think that notion of change, of course, change theory and change practice is really critical in the social services area. It hammered home to me, I think, that everybody has a story. Everybody comes to any interaction, sometimes with incredible challenges in their background. And remembering that and holding on to that is really helpful when you're dealing with people, which is inevitably what we're all about, regardless of what part of work you're in, you're dealing with people. So understanding the complexity of people's experience, that everyone has a story, is really, really important. If you're going to negotiate or if you're going to do stakeholder management, working with people in that way is helpful. But I guess the other thing that's sort of related to that is that there's very little that can throw you. I think when you've worked in the social services area, when you've worked as a social worker, people's anger, their distress, their frustration, that doesn't throw me. You know, crisis situations don't throw me. And I don't think they throw most professionals in those areas because you become used to that. You can sit with people when they're incredibly distressed. It doesn't you know, kind of throw you off. And that's really helpful when you're dealing with tense stakeholder negotiations, if you're doing contract management, if you've got just a whole range of distress in the work group, being able to sit with that and work with it and not being kind of put off by it, I think is really helpful. And that's certainly something that you gain in, in social work. So that whole idea of holding the space yeah, well, and giving everyone space to actually make sense of what's happening. Yeah. And I think not necessarily reacting to the what's presenting, but sitting with it and allowing it to evolve. And then you can get to what the real issue is. But if you react to the first part, then you're off in a rabbit hole that it may take a long time to recover from. And the whole idea of stories, because I think yes. people yeah. this day in this day and age, there's a big emphasis on, well, how do we know that if we're spending the money in this way, that we're going to get the type of outcome that we want, which we all know is, you can, can't can say it's guaranteed. No. <laughs> but the value of actually stories and understanding what is actually happening, yeah. it helps us to understand the data, doesn't oh, it? Every time, I think that listening very deeply to the stories, to the data, to whatever information is coming at you, but that skill of core skill of listening and just sitting there and trying to take it in rather than jumping to a conclusion quickly, which I think there's a lot of pressure on us to do. And that's where we often get into trouble, where we haven't spent that time listening and trying to tease out more information. And I know for particularly women who are in caring professional roles, making the decision to move away from that type of role to one 
where there's a lot more pressure as a senior executive and they're expected to take that broader strategic and financial focus can be quite daunting. What sort of advice would you give to someone considering that shift? Look, I think it's firstly valuing your own skill base. There are so many transferable skills. And we've just talked about that critical people management and relationship management, which I think people in the caring services, that's just in their bones, how to manage relationships and how to value other people and respect other people, start where the client is at. That is just fundamental good management practice and good stakeholder practice. So it's so transferable. That idea of listening and understanding that situations are complex because it doesn't matter what situation it is, there'll be a range of perspectives and information that you'll need to pull together to figure out what to do. And that is very much core to the social services area. I think people who are in the social services and the caring professions are used to dealing with complexity. I mean, you've nailed it. That's exactly, they're very used to wicked problems. And that notion that there are so many things that we're dealing with that are the results of other problems. They're downstream and we're trying to deal with the downstream effects of problems that are upstream and that are interconnected. And I think also a bit of that acceptance that Some of these problems are never solved. There is not a solution to the problem. And that, in fact, it's about, you know, ongoing evolution and adapting our response. Uh, I think it was um, Donald Schoen, you know, the great policy thinker who said, uh, it's not about knowing and managing. It's about learning and adapting. And I think that's true of so much public policy work, but also work in the corporate sector. It's learning and adapting and being agile are those words that you hear all the time, nimble and agile. Well, people in the caring services do that all the time. They have to because their work is often so unpredictable. Um, They're dealing with human beings who are unpredictable and have very complex and different reactions. So I think there's a lot of transferable skills. I know that when I first started working in an economic portfolio, I was reviewing commercialization policy. And I brought to that all of the work that I'd done in the social services on purchaser provider and commissioning work. They're very much the same. They're just badged in a different way. And I think having that kind of assessment that a lot of the things that you're dealing with in the social services and the caring services are by a different, you know, badged in a different way, the other things you'll be dealing with in other spheres. So taking the time to try research and understand the dialect of the new area that you might want to move into, you, you'll start to realize there are some very striking similarities and you'll bring a lot. But you'll also bring listening. And that isn't always a default of some of those other sectors and to their detriment. So I think valuing what the caring services given people and realizing that there is a really strong basis there to move into other areas. And in fact, when I moved into an economic portfolio, the people I was working for there were just so complimentary about the skills that I had, which for me were just very base level caring services, social services skills, but they weren't always there in other workers in that economic portfolio. So I think valuing it's really important. And I think you'd be really great at operating in the ambiguity because you're curious, you have to use creativity to find ways to work your way through things. You're more mindful about what's happening right now and taking that in. And they're all critical skills to be able to tolerate that type of ambiguity that you often face as a senior executive. I think you're absolutely right. And knowing how a critical 
communication is and that you might need to communicate in a variety of different ways. You know, some people are visual, some people are kinetic, some people are oral. And that's just, again, core to the social services work. You know that that work and you know you may have to present things in an, a range of different ways to get the message across. And then you may have to continue to present that information again and again because people hear in different ways or sometimes aren't ready to hear. So, yeah, I think you're right. That ambiguity, being comfortable with ambiguity is a, is a really a real asset. And I wonder if we sort of think, I mean, COVID-19 we know was classic case study in complexity. Indeed. And most people know that COVID caused supply chain and building cost challenges. But what are some of the other challenges we're seeing in that procurement space because of those interactions between different systems? Look, I think there's a there's a perennial challenge in the procurement area, and that is that we know if you spend time up front, like so many endeavors in life, if you spend time up front doing the planning, doing the you know the, the market intelligence, market engagement, doing the defining of the specs really carefully and testing that with people, you'll inevitably get a much better product at the end. So if you engage procurement people at the very beginning when you're starting to think about what to do, you'll end up getting a much better product at the end. But the problem is in government, oftentimes we don't have that luxury of time. It is often a crisis people are responding to, or there's pressure to get money out the door, or or whatever it is. That luxury of time and planning isn't really always there. And there are also expectations, I think, with the pressure that ministers and directors general and other executives are on, there is a sense of, well, can't you just go and get that thing for me quickly? And quickly now, I can, you know, I can do things quickly. Why can't you do things quickly? And understanding that these things do take time and you need to give them time if you're going to get the right result is an ongoing challenge and being able to negotiate to get that time up front is difficult. But I think when you don't have that time up front, having done that base level work of having good market intelligence that you keep up to date as part of your core background, having good relationships, having good relationships with critical friends. So having developed a network of critical friends that you can call on for advice when you're in the middle of quick crisis situations that, you know, has that credibility that can add to what you do. But if you haven't, you know, kind of maintained and developed that network, it's very difficult to cold call people and ask for assistance to get you through some of that. So I think Inevitably, those are the things that face procurement professionals every day, regardless of COVID. I think COVID just exacerbated that because it became clear that there are some things we're not going to be able to get unless we collaborate or we we need to find a new way of doing something. When the supply chains are broken down, we've got to find a new way. And finding a new way often means collaborating and sitting down and talking and, again, taking a little bit of time and not having a knee-jerk reaction even when the pressure is rising. Yes, yeah. And I think that really goes to the whole point that people often think that government procurement is very rigid, that it's very black and white, and people can be afraid of having conversations with people. I know the number of people over the years ago, we can't talk about that because we, you know, there might be a probity issue and people are afraid because they don't want to get themselves into trouble. Indeed. So, but some of those things are actually a bit of a myth, aren't they? They are. Look, I think it's very true that when you're talking about using taxpayers' money, the 
anxiety about doing the right thing rises. And so we had a culture of valuing probity probably more than flexibility. And I hope we're starting to emerge from that a little bit. People just get anxious, I think. And when there has been things that have gone wrong, we tend to put processes in place, not only for the area where it's gone wrong, but for everything. We'll just, we'll put up new process in place that will fix it for everyone, even when there wasn't a problem with most of the things that were being done. And then we never look at those things and take them off. We just accrete more and more processes that will supposedly keep us safe, when in fact, probity is always, you know, should always be thinking about probity and how do I ensure good use of the taxpayer's money? How do I make sure there's transparency and that we're getting best value for money? And there are many ways to do that. And I hope we're, we're starting to emerge a little bit from that because procurement professionals have got so many tools in their toolkit to help allow that good use of taxpayer money, but in a flexible way that meets the outcome. That So people get a good outcome that is value for money, but value for government. And certainly in the Queensland procurement policy, we talk about that added value, that importance of a good public procurement approach that ensures that we're using the government's money in a way that not only delivers a great service or product, but has an added value in that it's advancing the government's objectives, whether they be social, economic or environmental. And so we talk about how do we procure more with Indigenous suppliers? How do we procure more with local small to medium enterprises? Because we know that buying from those groups has an economic and an employment impact on the community that is really positive. And there are ways of doing those things and that there are ways that are very legitimate. People often think, oh, you know, do you have to do something a little bit dodgy to favour suppliers? It's like, no, absolutely not. There are things called set-asides where you can set aside a particular procurement to only be for Indigenous suppliers or for SME suppliers because we know there are a lot of capable suppliers in that cohort and we'll still get some good competitive tension, but we will be ensuring that that procurement is, is being made with a particular group that we know that will have flow on impacts into the community. There are things we can direct source when it's appropriate. We can do supplier engagement development so that if it's a thin market, if there aren't a lot of supplies in the area, we can work with stakeholders and suppliers to improve their competency uh, and do that in a partnership way. There's nothing wrong with doing all of those things. Uh, there are ways of doing it that you ensure that transparency and probity and that you get a good result from people. I mean, one of the ways that I think is really appropriate to the social services sector is that you can go out to the sector with a problem rather than with you know spe specifications for the solution. You can have a two-stage process where we go out with a problem and ask people to come tell us how they would solve this particular problem and then following that do another process to, to procure. So I think there are a whole range of skills and capacities that procurement professionals can bring to a particular procurement if they're involved early. And Hopefully, we are now starting to be seen more as a partner rather than the thing that you do if you want to stop something happening. People used to always talk about that. Please don't talk to procurement. That'll just add another six months to the process. It doesn't have to. And I think we're, we're getting much better at being flexible and agile. So I, I know if I reflect back on my time when I was working in an area that commissioned social services, you're absolutely right. Because if you go to procurement early in the planning process, 
you can avoid situations where you know that if you go to market, there's going to be market failure. If you go in a traditional way, that you are not going to find what you need. And so then you've spent all that time going through the traditional process. You've got market failure. And then you go and say, we need to do something different. And uh, the example that comes to mind for me is when we were commissioning some services for women in corrections. And there was a need to actually engage someone to deliver services for First Nations women within one of the big correctional facilities. We got market failure. But then what we did by working with procurement, we were actually able to take them through all of the different complexities of the situation, help them to understand that there was no one supplier who was going to be able to do what was needed to really help people change their life course trajectory. And so procurement actually helped us go up and broker a partnership where I think there was an element of set aside there. There were pre-identified criteria that had been set before the partnership conversations occurred. And then we created a space where the partners were all able to work together to develop up a model and work out between them who was best able to deliver the different components of that service for those women. And then we put in gates for review and evaluation and made sure that we didn't lock everything down into a contract that could never be changed. Because recognizing that things change on the ground, things change with the people that you're providing services to, and that those type of arrangements need to be flexible enough to respond It's not like you're buying a bunch of widgets under contract for five years. No, no, absolutely. And that's the great thing is is that good procurement people have so many methodologies that they can apply. If you explain to them the the issue you're trying to solve, you're right, they can come in and support you. And that's an excellent example of looking at a problem and saying, hey, let's think about how we can do this, the stages that will get us where we need to go. Yeah. And I know we've had, I was involved in other processes where we did what you were suggesting, the two-step type of process where we say, we know we want something that achieves this outcome, but we don't quite know how to get there. So let's go and do a big engagement piece and invite everybody who may have some idea about what we can do into that process and design something up. Yeah. And once we've worked out what it is that everyone thinks we need, then we put a line in the sand yes, and then we start saying, now we need to be really careful about probity because we're going through this process. But you don't have to do that from the start. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. And there's been a number of really successful programs that have done just that and come with a great, great kind of outcome, but also an outcome that I think knows that it needs to keep monitoring and keeping an eye on things because things are going to keep changing and you need the contract, as you say, that allows that change to occur as the model evolves. Yeah. And particularly when we're working in the social services space, we it's not just a matter of this contract isn't working, so we're going to go to market and get someone else. No, no, Because no. often we're talking about where people live. Yes. But services that are deeply integrated into the lives of their families. Yeah. Yeah, And so actually understanding how within the framework do we actually have the types of conversations that need to be had to address issues as they arise, to actually change what's in the contract. Just because you bought one thing three years ago doesn't mean that you have to keep buying the same thing. Not at all. Not at all. That's the point of having those conversations and have, as you say, those reviews and setting up reviews so you can have that conversation. 
Yeah, yeah. So are there any other common myths about government procurement that you'd love to see debunked? Look, I think it is that you've hit on it, that notion of partnership that I think that procurement people aren't the people you go to when you absolutely must have to, that you've got no way of avoiding them. I think it's, yeah, how do you, you have that partnership up front and they will be willing partners. Procurement people, but the people I've come across, and I'll be honest, I've only been in procurement for the last four years, they are desperate to solve problems and help people. They generally have that, I want to help, I, I want to problem solve. And generally in government, that is also about, I want this to be a good procurement that does other things as well. So we have so much interest in procuring from social ventures and social enterprises because people are aware that, you know, using those services gives a whole heap of people a hand up. And so there's a great deal of interest and hunger to do good things with the government's money. So getting that extra bit of value into the contract is really there. So I think there is that sense of wanting to support and to help and be a good partner. And also that I think procurement people end up doing really interesting jobs because they often are involved in so many different facets of government service delivery. They learn so much about so many different things. They have to get across so much content to be able to design the process to go out successfully. So yes, if I think it's about that, it's about that hunger to be good partners and that they are kind of interesting and interested people. And I think that's such a fascinating thing about your current role because you cover such a broad spectrum and so many different contexts. So there's that real opportunity to look at what is done really well and for great benefit in one area and see what you might be able to experiment with in another and see if you can actually shift some of the systemic barriers that have been there for a long time. Very, very true. And it's interesting that there is so much similarity in some of the issues that come up in the procurement of major construction projects as there are with social services. It's very interesting. You would think that they would be very different procurements, but in fact, a lot of the issues and challenges that come up are very similar. And that is about that early market engagement and helping define the problem and de-risk at the, you know, rather than pricing risking, how do you de-risk up front? How do we talk about that in a way that doesn't destroy priority? But then contract management is an ongoing skill. I think, you know, relational contract management is just as applicable in construction and infrastructure as it is in social services. So it sounds from what we've been talking about that people should feel more comfortable, feel more safe to try doing something different in procurement, but do it in partnership with the procurement people because they'll keep you out of trouble. That's what we hope. And if they get a bit nervous, people can always turn to the Queensland Procurement Policy and check. There's a lot of flexibility in there. And hopefully we also then can provide a little bit of a safety net as well. If people are concerned or they're anxious about a methodology they're trying they can give us a call and we're happy to work with them and, and help them put the necessary probity around it if they're doing something a bit new that gives them the confidence and the client the confidence to go forward. Well, I know your team did that when we did the Women in Corrections Partnership Project because I think people in our local department were a little bit nervous. Understandable. <laughs> understandable. That's why but, we exist. I mean, if <laughs> we're okay with it and we are the, the nervous Nellies, then usually that can give yeah, some of the senior executives' confidence that we're going to be with you and make work, make this work together. So I think I'm hearing from that is that just don't take this, the first no as the no. 
keep asking curious questions, keep asking if there's someone else who can come in and join the conversation and explore how we might tackle this challenge. I think so. Yep. I think that's exactly it. Just continue to engage. Here's the problem I'm facing. I really think there's some, you know, I'm sure you can give me some advice and help me with this. Can we look at a few different approaches? Yeah. So I wonder, Sharon, if we can take it back to a more personal level now. So I'm curious about whether you've ever been faced with a complex situation that afterwards you wish that you had managed differently. Look, I think it's not an unusual circumstance. Uh, but I, I think every time you kind of refine and grow your practice and you look back on things, you think, oh, I would do that differently. And when I was thinking about this, I think oftentimes what I would do differently, it's about managing your own defaults. So I've got a couple of defaults and usually one's default serves one very well. So I have a default where I will always try and make something work. I will always, you know, that's part of my skill set is I get thrown into situations that have gone a bit awry and then we sit down and we, you know, figure it out and we make it work. But occasionally, and there have been circumstances where I have worked really hard to make something work and I shouldn't have. I really should have called it and said, no, no, this isn't going to work. Even if we go ahead with it and we do all the right things, we're still going to get a very suboptimal outcome. So calling that and, you know, putting a halt to something, and this was a really complex, was a complex recruitment exercise in another department a long time ago, uh, you know, multiple levels, multiple things. It was just, but it was being done disastrously. And instead of trying to make it work, I should have stopped it and started again because we made it work to a certain degree, but there were still tears at the end and we would have been much better halting that. And it was reflecting on that was like, no, no, you really have a default where you try, you will try and make it work. And sometimes it's about saying, no, this isn't going to work. I'm going to stop. And I guess the other thing is really that it's related to that. Uh, there are situations where if someone asks me to do something and it's in a complex situation, I will jump in and try and solve that problem. And again, I should probably be asking a lot more questions at the beginning when someone comes to you with a complex situation. And particularly if it's someone, whether it be from a minister's office or from another director general's office or whatever, they're coming to you with a complex situation. There's the sort of the person in me who wants to be the smartest girl in the room, who's, who just wants to solve that problem and get in and be really great and special. And in effect, that sometimes doesn't work. Sometimes you're much better off to sit and to ask a lot of questions, uh, to do a great intake interview, to use the social services sort of parlay, to really ask a lot more questions and allow a bit of space too, because sometimes when people are coming to you with an issue for you to solve, it's not yours to solve. And having a bit of space and asking some questions and working people through that process, they will either come to that realization themselves or they'll realize that you know that and they will, they will. And I think those are those those situations. There's been a couple of those for me where I think I have rushed in too quickly to solve the problem. It wasn't mine to solve. And again, there has been tears at the end of that because of that, rather than asking a lot of questions and maybe having a bit more space in there to allow someone else to solve that for themselves. They're the sorts of things that come to mind for me. And that's just managing those defaults, which 
or generally serve you very well. And it's why you're, you know, sort of respected and you've got a great career is because you've worked on those things, but they're not appropriate for every situation. And so it really comes back to understanding yourself and what's driving you in different situations. I know for myself, someone who tends to be very driven by their values and recognizing at the point at which those values are no longer workable and to being a bit kind to yourself and saying it's okay to step away here. And in actual fact, this isn't serving this situation. No. And I think that's, yeah, if you come to that, it's like, actually, I'm doing no one any favors here. That it, you, it doesn't serve the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And as we know with complexity, it's all understanding the nature of the situation that you're in so that you can try the right types of techniques to find a way through. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. That you have that space to choose a way of interacting rather than just going with what you typically do. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Sharon, if you could look back and give advice to your 25-year-old self, what would it be? What would you say to yourself? Apart from, you know, what do we always say to ourselves? You're going to be okay. Dump that loser partner. They're never going to be any good. (laughs) They're wasting your time. (laughs) So apart from that, I think, you know, breathe out. Like breathing out is really important. The importance of breathing in is good, but breathing out is really good which is, you know, that allowing that space, taking a moment, not rushing in or feeling the anxiety, I think, to perform and to jump in, just breathe out and and stay. I think also not falling into negative thinking and cynicism, no matter how attractive that is, because it's a really attractive way to be when you come across resistance or things not working out, particularly when you're younger and, and you know, you're wanting to do good things and you come against resistance and and you suddenly, you know, you become quite cynical and dismissive. And I think what I would say, and it was in fact what one of my managers said to me at that point is, try and be positive, try and put a positive construct on this. If you can try and connect with people's best intentions rather than their worst intentions, we have a tendency, or I had a tendency, when something went wrong, just to look at you know the people I was interacting with and identify their worst intentions. That they they did have bad intentions, but they also had really good intentions. And you get a lot further if you engage with people's best intentions and are able to engage with that and continue to engage rather than dismissing and walking away. So I think those are the things that I would say to myself: is just look at that situation and try go back and engage things get better if you engage and continue the conversation until it has its natural ending rather than stepping away and and brooding and making up all sorts of madness in your head about what's going on. That's probably not helpful. That's quite energy sapping as it would. (laughs) And yeah, someone once diagnosed me with toxic self-righteous rage and they were so on the money with that. But the way to deal with that really is A, to breathe out and B, then go back and engage with kind of an openness rather than thinking you know what's going on and you've got all the answers and everyone else is terrible and you're righteous and wonderful. That's probably not the answer. So I think, yeah, that, that would probably be the advice to just to be a bit more open and positive even when you're feeling you know, that you've hit resistance and you've hit a wall. Just find that strength to go back and engage and keep engaging. 
that helps. It helps to keep engaging and keep listening. So as you were sharing that advice that you would give back to yourself, just made me think of a number of the complexity mind traps that Jennifer Garvey Berger talks about, because one of them is feeling that you're right and feeling that, look, you know this, it looks familiar, it's ticking all the boxes, you recognize the pattern so you know the answer. And instead asking yourself, you know, what are three ways in which I could be wrong here? Yep. I think you're right, that little bit of doubt, using doubt positively, not in, you know, kind of a way that paralyzes you, but just, yeah, that what, what the Buddhists talk about, that not knowing mind. That's really important. If you've got to listen properly and if you, you're going to be able to respond, listening so important. And you can't do that if you, you're into your self-righteous, intoxicating, you know, I'm right thing. Um, but it's really attractive. It's really hard sometimes to let go of those patterns. Yeah. And then also when you were talking about people's intentions, you know, you might not have received something that's happened well, but being more curious about, well, why does that person think they are the hero yeah. in this situation? Why do they think they're doing the right thing? Yes. Look at it from their perspective. Yeah. 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 I think so. And that trying to have compassion for people and that most people are trying to do the good, right thing. They've got a lot of pressure on them. And if you can find that spot of a bit of compassion after you've had the rage and the eternal rant in your head. Just uh, yeah, trying to find find that yeah, compassionate understanding. It, it allows you to keep moving. It allows things to keep evolving rather than things to become paralyzed. Yeah. And being careful not to take it to the other stre- extreme where someone then starts treating you like a doormat. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I had someone, a spiritual teacher once say to me, um, sometimes compassion is a hug and sometimes it's a slap. <laughs> but, oh, goodness gracious. Uh, but you've got to be work really hard to understand when when's the right response. What's the right? What does compassion really require of you in this in this circumstance? So, Sharon, if people were to remember only one thing from our conversation today, what would that one thing be? Listen and engage. It's two words, but kind of the the, the one thing in that. Yeah. Listen and engage would be the, it seems critical to just about any endeavor in life. It's very good advice. And Sharon, if people after listening today would like to connect with you, how could they go about doing that? Sure. I am just at, they can email me. I'm at Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N dot Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y at E-P-W qld.gov.au. Always happy to catch up with people and, and chat. Sharon, thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom today. It's been wonderful and I hope listeners have really gotten something out of that. And if anyone is in a public service role, I think there's lots of really good advice for you there about how you can actually deal with the complexity that's often associated with bureaucratic systems. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Go and ask for advice and say you want to partner with the procurement people. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a lovely conversation. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for listening. If you heard something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others. 
post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.